There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, history friends. Zach Twomley here for When Diplomacy Fails. Who is Zach Twomley and what is this podcast? Well, that's a strange time to answer that question. And it's a strange time to ask it as well, since this is episode 75 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So if you don't know what you're in for today, it is a bit of an odd choice to drop in at this point. But I won't begrudge you for it. Instead, I'll say Zach Twomley is a podcaster, obviously, an author, a lecturer, a corrector of papers, an eater of pizzas, a drinker of Pepsi Max and coffee and Guinness and sometimes craft beer if I'm feeling fancy, an enjoyer of chocolate buttons, a lifter of weights if he's feeling energetic. But most of all, he's a lover of history, and that is why I have this podcast, and that is why I'm sure you are here today to listen in with me. Lovers of history have never had a better choice of history podcasts, but they also have a great thing that they can do, which is go and meet their favourite history podcasters in person. You can do this as well. If you live near New York, then on the 29th of June, I've got some great news for you. The Intelligent Speech Conference is going to involve the heavyweights of history podcasting, including Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to intelligencespeechconference.com to find out more information. And use the code WDF to get 5% off your ticket price, which has been significantly reduced because they've gotten a better venue to fit all you crazy history fans in. Maybe that's not your thing, though. Maybe you don't really like talking to people in person, and you'd rather instead discuss the latest episode of this show. In which case... Flick is the place you should go. You can download the app Flick free on the different stores, whether that's over on Apple or the Android store. We've got a Flick for you. Or you can click on the link in the description below and it'll take you straight to it. If you search flickapp.com or just Flick app, why do we like Flick? Well, it's a very handy way to bypass Twitter and Facebook if you're not into that kind of thing. 
and talk directly to the people that you have most in common with because you like and listen to this show. If that doesn't sell you, then you should know I'm there fairly regularly starting new conversations and getting involved with ones that are already going. Well, as much as I can do, because believe it or not, and I know I've probably said this before, it's been a crazy past few weeks. We've been very busy with things, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And by that, I mean I'm nearly finished writing and researching Versailles, which means I could move on to something else. And I don't have anything else to do. So no, wait, no, wait, actually, I do. I have to finish my 30 years war book and stuff and prepare for my PhD and also other things which I'm sure haven't popped up yet but will in the future so I don't have any free time at all but that's okay because I love what I do and I'm able to do it because you guys support this podcast so darn well on Patreon and if that super slick segue into Patreon doesn't get you going then you should know that you can get an hour of extra content every single month delivered directly to your downloads. At the moment, that is the Suez Crisis from 1956, but in the future it's going to be really fantastic series, completely original that you won't get anywhere else, such as Poland is Not Yet Lost, which involves me examining Poland and its course of history, somewhat depressing but also sometimes inspiring and always interesting, through the 1700s. If you want to know how Poland went from being one of the major powers in Europe to being partitioned out of existence and thereafter having to fight for its existence as a nation-state in the 20th century, then the series Poland Is Not Yet Lost is the ticket for you. We are, of course, starting our PhD in September, so rather than starting The Age of Bismarck, which I would like to do, I'm starting this instead because I've got some background stuff done on it. And in the future, I promise, we'll be able to delve into Bismarck. But until then, we have Poland. And for now, we have Versailles. So without any further ado, let's get into it. The 75th episode of this Whopper Project. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 75. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 75 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Episode 75 is quite the landmark, and we've got a packed installment in store for you today. Last time we saw how the Paris Peace Conference entered into a dramatic new phase, as the Kent proposals arrived from the German delegation, and the big three became inexplicably divided over how to proceed. Lloyd George, it seemed, came under the influence of his more conciliatory Dominion delegates, and before long he was urging concessions. Woodrow Wilson and much of the American delegation, including House, seemed to be of the opinion that while the treaty wasn't perfect, it was too late to change it now. George Clemenceau was on the opposite end of the spectrum, and he insisted that the treaty had to be completely upheld, even those parts which now made the British uneasy. It is also fair that Lloyd George's own inherent biases were beginning to shine through. He pushed for a plebiscite in Upper Silesia due to his anti-Polish feelings. He vouched for the increasingly aggressive Hungarian regime due to his inbuilt dislike for the Romanian premier, Ioan Bratianu. And he continued to insist that it was Russia, rather than the Germans, that would pose the greater threat in the future to the European peace. Rallying against these ideas was George Clemenceau first and foremost, so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that the formerly warm Anglo-French relationship begins to deteriorate from the first week of June onwards. Surprisingly enough, even while discussing the German Kedra proposals sounds like it should be the top of the Big Three's priorities, they still managed to allow other unrelated concerns to unduly detain them. Or perhaps it was the case that the Big Three felt unable to separate key issues like reparations, Eastern Europe, the Italian settlement, and Russia from the German treaty. From the 5th to the 10th of June either way, the discussions among the big three continued, and as they talked, deadlines for presenting their answer to Germany continued to tick by. First it was imagined they'd have their answer by Friday the 6th of June, then by Monday the 9th. In the end, 
Monday the 16th was the date affixed to the Allied reply to the German counter-proposals. Once again, the big three underestimated the task ahead of them, and before they could settle with the main event of the Paris Peace Conference, they found that the closer to the end they got, the more urgent and pressing the appeals from the other delegations and actors became. The Paris Peace Conference, it was clear, was not going to go down quietly, much like the First World War itself. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you back to where this terrible problem began, the British Empire delegation meeting of Sunday the 1st of June, 1919. It had all begun on Sunday the 1st of June. That was when the opposition of the British Empire delegates to the notions of a stringent peace was made known. The occasion of the meeting must have been quite surreal, but although so much confusion and difficulty was to emerge from it, the actual form of the meeting itself was remarkably calm. Lloyd George himself recalled the experience in his memoirs written in the 1930s. He said, I summoned a meeting of British ministers and Dominion premiers in Paris to consider the reply we should make to the German note. It met in my flat in the Rue Nito on Sunday, June the 1st, 1919. It lasted, with a short interval for lunch, until late that evening. It then adjourned to the following day and continued the whole of the morning. It was one of the most remarkable cabinet councils ever held by the British Empire. It consisted of nine of the principal members of the British government. Every dominion was represented by its chief political leaders. We had assembled to sit in judgment upon the reply given to the terms of peace offered by the Allies to an enemy that had fought us for four and a half years and inflicted incalculable losses and injuries upon us in the course of the most destructive war ever waged in this world. We were all convinced that this devastating conflict had been deliberately provoked by the enemy that was now suing for more lenient terms and we each represented nations that had suffered cruelly from the hurts wantonly inflicted upon them. Nevertheless, the meeting was especially notable for the calm and impartial spirit displayed by every speaker. There was a complete absence of bitterness or vindictiveness in the observations made. As far as the temper that prevailed was concerned, it might have been a meeting of the official representatives of a benevolent neutral called upon to adjudicate upon the points in dispute between the parties. Lloyd George went on to detail that the major points of contention for the delegates assembled was to French occupation of the Rhineland, the unspecified nature of German membership in the League of Nations, the settling of eastern borders and the reparations issue. With regard to the east, the fear was that Poland stood to gain at Germany's expense, particularly in Silesia. As Lloyd George recorded Jan Smuts as saying regarding Poland, Poland was a historic failure and always would be a failure, and in this treaty we were trying to reverse the verdict of history. He, Jan Smuts, asked that the Allies should hesitate before guaranteeing frontiers for Poland, such as were now proposed. These frontiers required careful reconsideration. Perhaps a plebiscite would afford a solution. Regarding the reparations issue, though, it is easy to become incredibly confused when examining the minutes. The short version is that Lloyd George started out relatively convinced that the best way to bring the Germans to the peace table would be to have a figure for reparations already agreed upon among the big three. This stance changed to devising the reparations some within three or four months after the treaty was signed, and finally by the 9th of June it was the Americans who were desiring that a sum be fixed, set at the maximum of 120 billion gold marks while British financial experts, in league with the French, were of the view that At present, little more can be done than to hazard a hypothesis regarding reparations. Like all the other belligerent powers, Germany is still living under an exceptional regime. The rate and extent of her recovery cannot at present be forecasted, but the period mentioned in the treaty was chosen in order to give time to the national economy to adapt itself to the new situation. The substitution of a sum fixed now by an arbitrary hypothesis for the system established by the treaty after a very full and arduous discussion appears to be very undesirable and to abandon without any sufficient advantage a plan which secured to Germany the opportunity and right to be heard and to have decision taken in accordance with equity. This turnaround is confusing indeed. It seems that the American delegation came to believe that fixing a sum for reparations would be a good idea, whereas Lloyd George and George Clemenceau came to be of the view that it would not. 
The explanation for this development seems to be partially explained by Lloyd George's willingness to pick his battles. He focused much more intently, as we will see shortly, on the Upper Silesian question and the Polish question in particular. Yet, as Lloyd George himself notes in his 1938 memoirs on the peace treaties, ironically titled The Truth About the Peace Treaties, the simple reason for this relenting was that the mission of arriving at a set figure was just too difficult. He wrote, In the subsequent discussion, there was a great deal of support given to General Smuts's view that it would be better to agree to a fixed sum if that were possible, although it was quite clear from the various suggestions made in the course of our deliberations that if we had attempted, at that gathering, to obtain agreement as to the actual amount of that sum, we should have failed, entirely, to do so. Lloyd George knew that not even the British Empire delegates could agree on a sum, so it would hardly have surprised him to see that the Big Three's delegates and their respective economic advisers were similarly flummoxed. It is interesting to note the mentioning by the American financial experts of the sum of 120 billion gold marks. This was more than double what Germany would eventually be asked to pay in the 1921 London Schedule of Payments. And yet the German counter-proposals, interestingly as well, had offered to pay some 100 billion gold marks, although as the British financial experts appreciated, this offer was so hedged about with conditions and qualifications as to appear to be intended to provoke controversy and not to promote peace. One figure who noted the strange inner turmoil of the Prime Minister and the reparations issue was his foremost economic expert, John Maynard Keynes. On the 3rd of June, Keynes wrote in his diary that The Prime Minister, poor man, would like now at the 11th hour to alter the damned treaty, for which no one has a word of defence, but it's too late in my belief, and for all his wrigglings, fate must now march on to its conclusion. I feel it is my duty to stay on here, so long as there is any chance of a scheme for real change being in demand, but I don't expect any such thing. Anyhow, it will be settled soon, and I am bound for home. But the wriggling didn't stop by Lloyd George in the first few days of June. US Secretary of State Robert Lansing recorded that on the 4th of June, US economic advisers were shell-shocked by receiving word that Lloyd George had changed his mind and now favoured an indefinite amount. Lloyd George had by this point reached the second phase of his epiphany and he wanted to give Germany three months in which she could suggest a reparations figure. A chameleon has nothing on Lloyd George, Lansing wrote. The US delegates seemed determined to press for a fixed sum and some concessions, including the retention by Germany of certain amounts of working capital in the form of ships, gold and investments abroad. Lloyd George insisted, any figure that would not frighten the Germans would be below the figure with which I myself and Monsieur Clemenceau could face our people's in the present state of public opinion. It was clear, in other words, that the act of opening the reparations debate had been akin to opening Pandora's box. Everyone wanted to change their minds, or at the very least, begin a new phase of discussion and debate, which time no longer allowed for. Little wonder that Clemenceau wanted to tear his hair out. The discussions would be all for naught in any case, because reparations would not be changed in any notable way from the draft treaty to final treaty meaning that these discussions were mostly just a big waste of time. But they did have profound implications in that they served as the final straw for John Maynard Keynes, who resigned shortly after it was confirmed that no changes would be made. Only three weeks after resigning, he had already made a significant stab at that work which was to have such a transformative impact on the 20th century, the economic consequences of the peace. Interestingly, when Keynes met with his old friends from the British delegation in late June, he was unsure whether he should persevere with this depressing tract. These same friends, which included Cecil from the League of Nations Commission fame, persuaded him to keep at it, and the book was published in December 1919. One wonders what might have been had John Maynard Keynes decided against publishing what would go on to be arguably the most influential negative account of the Paris Peace Conference. Considering all the wounds which the resurrection of the reparations debate inflicted, 
we should feel apprehensive indeed about the other debates which the British Empire delegation honed in on. One of these was the general settlement in Eastern Europe. Jan Smuts, as Lloyd George's account has made plain, had little faith in the ability of Poland to maintain itself or its borders, but as we've learned by now, Jan Smuts was in good company as a sceptic of Polish statehood. Tasked with defending his country's track record and claim to the future was Ignacy Paderewski, the Polish premier and famed pianist, who on the morning of Thursday the 5th of June met face-to-face with Poland's greatest critic, the British Prime Minister, in the 11am meeting of the Council of Four. Paderewski began by expressing his thanks in very extravagant language for the Allied consideration of Poland, saying, I beg to express, first of all, my sincere and deep appreciation of your thoughtful and gracious action in having me come here to be informed about your intentions. Of course, the destiny of my country is entirely in your mighty hands, and you could very well have disposed of it without notifying me of these intentions. I beg to thank you most warmly and most sincerely indeed. Paderewski then proceeded to discuss the different portions of Silesia which were causing the dispute. Wilson and Lloyd George wanted to know some details of this upper Silesian region and the distribution of German to Polish citizens. Paderewski gave as much details as he could from memory, and he then explained the situation of Mamel, a city along the coast of Lithuania which had significant German roots and which Poland was now claiming. Mamel concerns Lithuania and it is very dear to us, Paderewski said, adding, We have some trouble with Lithuania now, as we have had with every population which was formerly belonging to the Polish Republic, but we know to whom we owe these troubles, to the Germans, and we naturally understand it. This was an interesting note, because it demonstrated that Paderewski was basing the legitimacy of his current claims on the spread of the old republic, and by old republic, what Paderewski actually meant was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of the early 18th century. To prove his country's deserving nature, Paderewski underlined Poland's credentials, saying, Mr. President and gentlemen, I call your attention to the fact that the changes which you intend to introduce into the treaty might endanger the whole situation, not of my country alone, but of Eastern Europe. For the last few months, Poland has been a stronghold of peace and order in the East. We have had no sign of revolution, no sign of Bolshevism, but if there is fighting, it is unfortunately fighting on the borders. It is not due to our people, it is due to the necessity of defending ourselves. We have not attacked anyone, and I am ready to prove the truth of my statement by facts and at any moment. In fact, though, one theatre where Poles were unquestionably engaged in violence was in the Ukraine, a region where confusion reigned thanks to the lack of clarity over where Russia, Ukraine and Poland actually ended. The Russian Civil War complicated matters, as did the spread of Bolshevism into Ukraine and the inclusion of Polish border questions into the final Treaty of Versailles. These factors all meant that no sense of clarity could be had until the final peace treaty with Germany was made, which of course left those aforementioned factors, including Polish security, in a state of permanent limbo. Yet it was in this state of limbo that Lloyd George evidently believed the Poles were endangering their neighbours. He went straight to the Ukrainian well upon Paderewski's claim that Poland had not attacked anyone, which compelled Paderewski to engage in a long and probably pre-rehearsed speech defending his country's conduct in the region. The disputed region of Galicia, which Ukraine and Poland shared, contained a relatively even split of peoples, Paderewski claimed, and Poland's conduct had been exemplary throughout the recent advances there. Paderewski was careful to underline the acclaim of the local populace in Galicia for Polish rule, also their fear of Bolshevism and the good order of Poland's troops. Paderewski also explained how Ukrainian partisans had surged against Polish forces following the Polish acceptance of an Allied demand to stop moving in the region, which had been accepted in mid-May. Paderewski was loud in his insistence that this acceptance of a ceasefire in the region was unpopular, and he added that If you are interested in the fact that there should be no bloodshed in the country, I am able to tell you that the whole offensive in Galicia had not cost us 100 people in killed and wounded. There were no battles. In many places, the population, stimulated by news of Polish troops advancing, 
took the matter in hand themselves. The Polish population is very numerous there, about a third of the inhabitants being Poles, about 37%. To this, Lloyd George asked Paderewski straight out whether Poland claimed all of Galicia, to which Paderewski replied, Historically, yes. Lloyd George then asked several more leading questions, which Paderewski evidently interpreted as the Prime Minister trying to box in his country to a certain convenient criteria. Paderewski refused to back down, though. Regions in question were too ethnographically diverse to strip away from Poland, or they were once Polish but had been Germanicized in recent decades, which was in fact true in several cases. But Paderewski was preaching to the wrong audience if he believed that Lloyd George was in any mood to help him. Armed with a fierce sense of anti-Polishness and a newfound apprehension over taking any substantial land from the Germans, Lloyd George presented a stiff front. This prompted Paderewski to reply with a rebuke that seriously elevated the temperature in the room and provided arguably the high point of the week's meetings. Paderewski said, If there is any essential change in that which has been already granted to Poland, I should immediately resign, because I could not return to my country if there is any such change as a plebiscite here or any essential change in the disposition of the territory which has been made public already as granted to my country. If there are such changes, I couldn't have anything more to do with politics, because it would be absolutely impossible to rule my country. You know that revolutions begin when people lose faith in their leadership. These people have faith in me now, because they were told by me, and most emphatically, that these things promised to them would be given to them. Well now, if something is taken away from them, they will lose all faith in my leadership. They will lose all faith in your leadership of humanity, and there will be revolution in my country. This prompted a withering response from the British Prime Minister. With the leadership of the peace effort challenged, it was essential that he speed to the defence. Yet Lloyd George was also rushing to meet the challenge of his own misgivings. He had always believed that the Poles were inherently unsuited for self-rule, that their instability had caused a morass of problems since the beginning of modern history. The Polish unilateral claims to Upper Silesia encapsulated all that was wrong with the Polish stance and the potential that it might upset the Germans still further meant that it was essential to ask the people living there first, via plebiscite, how they viewed their lot in life. Lloyd George's frustrations were palpable, and he held nothing back of his scorn for the Polish experience, saying, Here is Poland that five years ago was torn to pieces, under the heel of three great powers, with no human prospect of recovering its liberty, certainly without the slightest chance of recovering it by its own exertions. Why, during the four or five years of the war, the Poles were actually fighting against their own freedom, insofar as they were fighting at all. We were capturing Poles on the Western Front, and capturing them on the Italian Front. That was the condition of things. Now you have got, at the very least, even if you took every one of these disputed parts away, you have got 20 million Poles free. You have got an absolutely united Poland. It's a thing which no Pole could have conceived as possible five years ago. And in addition to that, they are claiming even populations which are not their own. They are claiming three and a half million Galicians. And the only claim put forward is that, in a readjustment, you should not absorb into Poland populations which are not Polish, and which do not wish to become Polish. This is the only point that is put. The Poles have not the slightest hope of gaining freedom, and have only got their freedom because there are a million and a half of Frenchmen dead, very nearly a million British, half a million Italians, and I forget how many Americans. That has given them their freedom, and they say they will lose faith in the leadership which has given them that, at the expense of millions of men of other races who have died for their freedom. If that is what Poles are like, then I must say it is a very different Poland to any Poland I ever heard of. She has won her freedom, not by her own exertions, but by the blood of others. And not only has she no gratitude, but she says she loses faith in the people who have won her freedom. Paderewski attempted to weather this storm. He hadn't meant to say that the world would lose faith in the Allied leadership, he insisted, only in the Polish leadership. But the minutes do record Paderewski, addressing his remarks against the Big Three as well, whether this was a potential mistranslation or not, or a slip of the tongue. Lloyd George continued the pressure, though, adding a further wound by saying, I was only referring to what you said. We won freedom for nations that had not the slightest hope of it. Czechoslovakia, Poland and others. 
Nations that have won their freedom at the expense of the blood of Italians and Frenchmen, and Englishmen and Americans, and we had the greatest trouble in the world to keep them from annexing other nations and imposing upon other nations the very tyranny which they themselves endured for centuries. You know, I belong to a small nation, and therefore I have great sympathy with all oppressed nationalities, and it fills me with despair the way in which I have seen small nations, before they have hardly leaped into the light of freedom, beginning to oppress other races other than their own. They are more imperialistic, believe me, than either England and France, and certainly the United States. It fills me with despair as a man who has fought all his life for little nations. This was too much for a proud Pole like Paderewski, who knew full well that Lloyd George was jumping the gun in this claim. While they might be claiming more than was undisputably Polish, according to the 14 points and map information available, nobody could accuse Polish statesmen of imperialism with a track record such as that which the Commonwealth boasted. And in line with this, Paderewski said, I beg to protest emphatically against the accusation that we are imperialists, adding, I am a representative of a nation which has fought for liberty for others. Where other nations were oppressed, Poland was always there to fight for liberty, wherever liberty was fought for. Paderewski then harnessed the record of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as he had done when justifying her claims on Mamel earlier on, saying with some emotion that, We are not imperialists, and we do not wish to annex any country or any people. We have never imposed upon any nation or foreign language. We never prosecuted any religion. We never imposed upon the people different customs. And the proof of it is this, that after 600 years of common life with primitive people, like the Lithuanians, like the Ruthenians, and even like the Ukrainians, these people are still existing, and even with our assistance, with our practical help, are regaining their individual character. With this flurry, Paderewski then recited a record given by a Catholic archbishop from the east of traditionally Polish country. These emotive pleas may have awakened something of the statesman in Lloyd George, who perhaps realised now that he had pushed Paderewski's buttons too far. I ought to say that you and I have been very good friends, Mr. Paderewski, Lloyd George said, adding, I don't want to have any dispute with you. Lloyd George then presented a definition of imperialism as he now understood it, and it amounted to the annexation of people against their will, regardless of race. Paderewski then reverted to his earlier argument. Did the resolutions adopted by Poland's Constituent Assembly not prove that Poland had no interest in the pursuit of imperialism? You mean that the intentions of the Poles are not imperialistic, Lloyd George said, adding, I am just hoping that they will not be, and that they do not mean to annex foreign populations. That is all I want. They don't, Paderewski replied adding, But you must find it natural that we try to protect people of our own speech and our own blood if they are attacked, if they are murdered, if they are slaughtered in Ukraine by these people under the Bolshevist regime. Now it was time for Lloyd George to hold his ground, making the very reasonable point that it was now a matter of he said, she said when it came to the East. They are making the same accusations against your troops, the Prime Minister said, adding with a note of regret and also impatience. I only saw a Ukrainian once. The only Ukrainian I have ever seen in the flesh was upstairs. I haven't seen another. It is the last Ukrainian I have seen, and I am not sure that I want to see any more. That is all I know about it. But that was far from all Paderewski knew about it. He went on to tell an anecdote of the city of Lemberg, where Polish youths had been seriously wounded and illegally attacked. Then, Paderewski rained down the different resolutions which Poland's Diet, or Sejm, had passed in favour of liberalism and autonomy for the surrounding regions. In these resolutions, it is worth noting that the Polish Diet referred to Lithuania still as the Grand Duchy, yet another echo of the Commonwealth past. Paderewski insisted that a plebiscite for Upper Silesia would never be fairly carried out because the leading German statesmen were attempting to undermine Polish self-determination with internal provocations. If that wasn't bad enough, Paderewski even claimed that Ebert's government was in contact with Trotsky and actively scheming to choke Poland between two pincers, starting with Upper Silesia. In yet another example of foreshadowing, in an era of foreshadowing, Paderewski noted that, Of course, 
It is not yet real war, but there are symptoms, and at any moment war may be a reality, and we have no munitions, we have no equipment. Within six months of Paderewski saying these words, the Polish-Soviet war would be in full swing, and Poland's actual independence would be in jeopardy. Then, as before, Lloyd George would view the Polish struggle for national survival, not as the heroic stand that it was, but as further evidence for her inherent insuitability for self-rule. The Polish-Soviet war, Lloyd George believed, merely vindicated his anti-Polish stance. Paderewski would be back before the Council of Four later that afternoon, along with several of his counterparts from Eastern Europe. Evidently, the Big Three planned to kill several birds with one stone, by getting the Polish, Czech, Romanian and Serbian representatives together in the same room. Conspicuous in their absence was the Hungarian element, whom everyone seemed to have an opinion on. The day before, it had been learned that the Hungarians had come to blows with their Czech neighbours, and the Romanians and Hungarians had been at each other's throats over Transylvania since the conference had begun. There remained a critical lack of information on the ground over who was at fault, but it was certainly easier to blame Bela Kuhn for the isolation of his country, rather than blame his democratic neighbours for dogpiling on him. Certainly, the Hungarian surge into Slovakia, formerly known as Upper Hungary, was the first of several attempts by Bela Kuhn to revitalise his regime's flagging popularity by appealing to the nationalism of the Magyars in their defence. But these efforts only prolonged his regime until August 1919, when it collapsed at the foot of a Romanian occupation of Budapest, the ultimate Hungarian humiliation. Back to this meeting, though. Clemenceau weighed in against an idea which was presently doing the rounds, that of disarmament. The idea of disarmament went that the League of Nations could ensure peace between states, and that by reducing their arms, these states could dramatically help their case. George Clemenceau made the point which had been elaborated on by Paderewski earlier in the day, though, that even while these smaller and larger states might engage in this policy, Germany was not sitting still. Crushed in the West... Germany was seeking expansion in the East, first military and then economic, Clemenceau insisted, adding that If Germany got control of Russia, the war would have been lost. The Germans in Silesia were not there for a parade. Would the Germans sign the treaty? Even if they did, I am not sure that they would evacuate this territory. With 350,000 soldiers on the Polish frontier, I am convinced, like all present, that the moment for limitation of armaments had not come. In case one might have doubted his Pacific credentials in light of his leadership during the war, Clemenceau worked to make his position clear that he had always been an enemy of war, although he had been dragged into it a great deal. But Clemenceau said that he would like today to take a solemn engagement before all that it would not be France who would provoke a future war. Yet another example of foreshadowing in this case, because of course this would be correct. In spite of expectations to the contrary in some British quarters, the French army was not the strongest in Europe in the 1939 war, and France was far from the most provocative either. As he continued to predict the future though, Clemenceau added another vision, insisting that it was essential not to create a situation of which some great power in a spirit of aggression would take advantage Supposing all were not in agreement on this question, it was mathematically certain that the war would cease before the limitation of armaments could begin, and I am by no means sure that peace itself would begin with the signature of this treaty. I think, therefore, that the best plan would be to decide to take a mutual obligation by the great and little powers to settle these questions when the right time came. We did not know what would happen to Germany, nor to Hungary." Ultimately, Clemenceau's expressions here amounted to an appeal not to forget that war was still on, and that the League of Nations, while a nice, shiny new idea, was only an idea right now, and not yet fully formed. Far better it would be to rely on traditional means for ensuring security, and to turn to the task of setting a splendid example to the world, as Clemenceau put it, by holding a disarmament conference within the next few years instead. This meeting adjourned shortly afterwards. Twenty-five years to the day before D-Day would be launched, on 6th of June 1919, 
a gathering far removed from that apocalypse, convened at 11am to discuss a range of issues as varied as the future of Russia and the settlement on Fiume. Of note in this meeting was just how little Germany factored into the considerations, as perhaps 10 different topics were likely touched on in a single hour. It was also notable to see Lloyd George speak of Russia, due to the darkly prophetic vision of the place he conjured up. It was utterly impossible to imagine how Russia would develop within even the next year, as the Russian Civil War remained in full swing, and devoid of regular updates which kept the Big Three informed of other theatres. As we have seen with other cases though, when the Big Three were ignorant of what was actually happening in a given region, be it in Weimar Germany, in China or in Fiume, they tended to resort to making pronouncements or predictions based on what they felt they knew about the subject. This is why Lord George's notes on Russia's future stand out so much to me here. He was both catastrophically wrong about the Germans and terrifyingly accurate about the Russians. Lloyd George said, France was most afraid of the Teuton, but my view is that the Teuton was largely done for. The nation I fear is the Slav, which was an incalculable factor, capable of following the instructions of a dictator or becoming Bolshevik. If some powerful, capable, ambitious man arose in Russia, the Slav race might become a great danger. Indeed, this powerful, capable, ambitious man was an unknown entity to the Big Three in 1919, but the name Joseph Stalin began to do the rounds within a few years after Lenin's death in early 1924. Of further interest is the angle Lloyd George chose for this analysis. Based on the fact that the Russians and Serbs were traditional allies, Lloyd George explained that Wilson could not begrudge the Italians for feeling concerned for their border with Yugoslavia, since this border could soon become completely entwined with that of Russia. Did this signify that the mood was softening on Italy, or that Britain was siding with Italian interests? Well, not exactly. The next day, on Saturday the 7th of June, Woodrow Wilson presented the memorandum in the appendix of the minutes. This, Wilson said, was as far as he was willing to go for Italy on the Fiume question. Vittorio Orlando, who was present in this meeting, gave his by now familiar response of essentially saying, Thank you, it means so much. I appreciate your efforts. I marvel at your sacrifices. This will never be forgotten. We will be friends forever. But... Orlando felt the need once more to refer to these impossible sacrifices he had had to make and to the danger which befell his government in accepting. By now, it was entirely likely the Big Three no longer believed Orlando when he insisted that his regime was in danger because he and many statesmen like him had used that trope so many times. The minutes recorded Woodrow Wilson responding to this flurry by Orlando, saying that he hoped Signor Orlando would not say this, because there are impossibilities on my side also. But what conclusions had Wilson just handed to the Italian Premier, and how far did it go towards giving Orlando what he wanted? In eight separate terms, Wilson set out the conditions of Fiume as a state, and in a handy bit of language which makes me look very smart indeed, the President actually compared the terms of the free port of Fiume to that of the free port of Danzig. You'll remember in our episode examining Danzig and the Rhine, we saw that setting precedents which could be used by Wilson later on in his treaty making was believed by the President to be a critical exercise, and in this case he certainly drew upon it. Fiume would have a League of Nations commission-style government, and it would be entitled to host a plebiscite on its status within five years, and Italy would be granted several new islands which were spelt out on a newly acquired map. Considering the sense of urgency surrounding the resolution of the fallout from the German counter-proposals, it is remarkable that the Big Three remained so preoccupied with issues relating, and completely unrelated to, that question during these eventful days. With Italy satiated for the moment, there was much talk from Monday the 9th of June about the situation in Eastern Europe, particularly the conflict underway between Hungary and her neighbours. The aforementioned dispute over reparations dominated the more serious discussions, but few decisions were actually arrived at. Incredibly, the situation saw the British and American leaders effectively swap their stances on the question of deciding a final sum for reparations, while Clemenceau remained more resolute than ever not to budge. On Tuesday the 10th of June, 
Wilson unloaded on the core problem in Eastern Europe. It wasn't Hungarian paranoia, Czech opportunism, the sickly arrogance of Yuan Bratianu, or even the expansion of the Poles that was to blame for conflict in the East. No, no. Everything could be blamed, in fact, upon the Germans. Wilson declared that he had No doubt that intrigues of this kind had been started by Germany. Unquestionably, Germany had tried to make the situation in Eastern Europe impossible for the Allies. It was, however, one thing to stir up trouble by means of propaganda, and another to do it by aggression. The Allies must see that they do not contribute to it by giving anyone just ground to dread them. Additional fulminations followed, as the Romanian and Greek figures defended their actions and insisted that the positioning of their soldiers in the present conflicts did not mean that they intended to stay. Bratianu in particular came under scrutiny, rightfully so considering his past behaviour, when he insisted that the present conflict compelled Romanian soldiers to move several hundred kilometres forward into Transylvania, and along the river Tice, or Tisa, which hugs the border of Hungary with Romania. Also of interest was the general inclination of Clemenceau to side with Bratianu and the Czechs against the Hungarians, and this was especially notable when Lloyd George attempted to give his two cents on the Hungarian situation. Clemenceau by this stage was already thinking of the post-war era, where France would be faced with an Eastern European bloc of states that she would be well-placed to court. Poland also formed an anchor in this chain, and this explains why Clemenceau had been virtually silent when Lloyd George had interrogated Paderewski a few days before, on the 5th of June. Lloyd George recognised that France was stuck in a difficult position, but in his memoirs he also rallied against the notion that France and its military were desirous of a second war to finish the Germans off. This was a common misconception, which did the rounds in the 1920s, thanks largely to the occupation of the Ruhr, which Premier Poincaré's government felt compelled to undertake between 1923-25. to Thinking back to that meeting of the 1st of June 1919 in that memoirs, where so much of the discord of the British delegation was laid out, Lloyd George recalled, It could be seen from the observations made by many, if not most of the speakers, that there was a real apprehension lest the Germans should refuse to sign the treaty, and that as a consequence we should have to march to Berlin. Some speakers went so far as to insinuate that such was the French hatred of Germany that they were hoping that such a refusal would be provoked by the harshness of the treaty in order to justify a military occupation of the German capital. I was convinced at the time, and still am, that no responsible Frenchman had that thought in his mind. France was tired of war, and all their soldiers were yearning to get back to their homes and to substitute the daily avocations to which they had been accustomed before the war for the misery and the squalor and the alternate peril and boredom of trench life. Though Lloyd George understood this key fact, he neglected to consider the impact which his sequence of epiphanies on the peace conference was going to have on Clemenceau or on French public opinion. On the 3rd of June, House was recording in his conversations with the French Premier that he, Clemenceau, said that if the controversy continued, the hatred which the French had for the English for centuries would soon return. He, Clemenceau, cannot speak of Lloyd George in temperate tones. And speaking of House, his diary is filled in the first two weeks of June with regretful notes on the state of affairs in Paris and on the state of the treaty. On Tuesday the 10th of June, aside from making one notable remark that he was confident he could get Wilson to stand for a third term again, an utter impossibility as it turned out, House also took the time to comment on the demeanour of the man he had once called his best friend. As House had demonstrated before, he was more than willing to take the gloves off when he felt like it, and he was feeling particularly salty on this Tuesday evening. Remarking on the new portrait of Wilson which had just been released, and the different man which seemed to be depicted in this third painting of his president, House wrote, And this reminds me that it is not the president's face alone that changes. He is one of the most difficult and complex characters I have ever known. He is so contradictory that it is hard to pass judgment upon him. He has but few friends, and the reason is apparent to me. He seems to do his best to offend rather than to please. And yet, when one gets access to him, 
There is no more charming man in all the world than Woodrow Wilson. I have never seen anyone who did not leave his presence impressed. He could use this charm to enormous personal and public advantage if only he would, but in that he is hopeless. Everything that does not square with good sense seems to him not worth while when, as a matter of fact, all of us have to yield to the prejudice, weakness and whims of our fellow man from time to time. Personally, I see people day after day who I know in advance will talk of matters about which I am much better informed than they are, and yet there is a certain advantage in seeing them and a great disadvantage in offending them. We must work collectively in order to work effectively. The President understands this intellectually, for he is always saying what he does not practice. He speaks constantly of teamwork, but he seldom practices it. Perhaps House felt that this failure to properly invest in teamwork had led to a deterioration in the relationship of the Big Three as well. Certainly Lloyd George's decision to dig back up some of the most sensitive parts of the treaty did not endear him any more to Wilson. It merely confirmed what he believed were the worst aspects of the Prime Minister's character. That Woodrow Wilson saw him as the opportunist, the politician and the weather vane of public opinion. When it had suited him during the December 1918 general elections, Lloyd George had called for fire and wrath to rain down upon the Germans. Now, six months later, since opinion in the UK had notably changed, Lloyd George had changed his opinions with it. The Prime Minister could claim that he had been persuaded by the passage of time and by the force of arguments put forward by his peers on the 1st of June. In Wilson's mind, though, this did not matter. All that rang true were the bare facts, and these were that, by the 10th of June 1919, the Big Three were perhaps less united on the terms of the peace than they had been since they first sat down together for a serious chat in the Council of Four. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 